Our passage this morning is taken from Romans chapter 12. This morning we're going to take verses 3 through 8. Paul talks about the gifts that are ours to use and live by in the church. Young Christians, young theologians, I want you to listen for what we're supposed to do with our gifts. Paul will tell us that we have them, but how are we supposed to use them? It might not be the easiest thing to hear, but listen close. I think you'll catch it. How does Paul want us to use the gifts that Jesus gives to us? This is the good news of Jesus, the generous king, in loving and keeping and caring for his church. For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Oh Lord Jesus, how can we be dissatisfied when you have been so gracious and generous to your church? You have loved us with all of your gifts and you have put gifts within the church for us to continue to experience and rejoice in your love. We pray now that you'll give us maturity because often we come to things like this without maturity. And yet, even though we are so capable of getting it so wrong so often, you are the faithful king and head and groom of your church, the beloved bride. So continue to make us one of your churches. Make us beautiful to your sight. Make us pleasing to yourself. We cannot do it, but there is an abundance of grace from the Lord and the Savior given to His church by which you make local congregations pleasing and beautiful and joyful to yourself. If we could be held in your heart like that, O Lord, we would be deeply grateful. Give us this as our experience, our life, our history together, and our legacy as well. And for it, we will thank you. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? The church has a long and illustrious career of getting these verses wildly wrong. It goes back as far as James and John, who asked through their mother to sit at the right and left hands of Jesus in his kingdom. Find us most gifted, Jesus. Find us most promising. Find us worthy of promoting. And Jesus simply said to them, Oh, you don't have the gifts for what you're asking. 
Or it's the rest of the disciples as a group, all together. They were arguing and debating. And then finally, they just came out with the question and asked Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? And he flabbergasted them all, and he put a child in the middle of them, and he said, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, you've got to be like this, which is not at all what they were expecting. Or it reaches even farther back still. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in paradise, who said... God has given us the authority to name everything. So we'll use the authority he's given. And with this authority, we name what God has forbidden good for us. And we name what he calls good the short end of the stick. We have a long, sad history of saying to Jesus, Aren't we gifted? And aren't you impressed? My daughter and I were talking about haunted houses, fun houses that we visited. For some reason, we never go to these places together. We always go through these places apart. And she told me of a time that she went through the House of Mirrors at the State Fair. All by herself, she's weaving her way through. And she got herself stuck Everywhere she looked, in every direction she looked, there were ten more of herself. And suddenly, in a distant corner, she saw a flash of movement. She saw another little girl slip through. And she made her way in that direction. And she got out, but she escaped only when she stopped looking at herself. Only when she stopped seeing herself amplified. And multiplied. This passage, passages like this one, they can be houses of mirrors. It's easy for us to get turned around and lost with James and John and all the disciples and Adam and Eve. Because when we read through these verses, we typically see ourselves. You you did that, didn't you? As we were going through these verses, didn't you see yourself in stacked mirrors, endless reflections, dozens of yourselves? When we were going through these verses, didn't you immediately jump to thinking, what's my gift? Does anybody notice? Has anybody thanked me or complimented me recently? Is my gift being used enough? And if you asked any question even remotely close to that series, I hate to be the one to tell you, but you're trapped in the mirrors because you're looking at the wrong thing. You're looking at yourself. Part of the problem, I think, is that we don't know how to read the Bible. For ease, our Bibles are broken into these editorial chunks with headings and subheadings, which isn't wrong. It can be a helpful reference tool, but it can also be misleading. Because sometimes we forget that one section doesn't stand alone. It doesn't stand by itself. It's connected to all the other passages around it. So, this passage this week isn't a sudden departure or change of subject for Paul. This is an elaboration from our text from last week. This is part of being a living sacrifice. This is part of not conforming to the world, deliberately not using our gifts for our advancement. This is part of transformation, 
your gifts, not held as your gifts, but given to the use of Jesus the King, the world transformer. So it's not a matter of my gifts for my sake. What do we do with our gifts then? The passage says we have them. The passage lists some of them. This representative sampling is something we call a metonymy. It suggests the whole collection of gifts in the church without listing them all out. But even in this representative grouping, there's an array of gifts listed here. There's prophecy, which, by the way, with the gathering up of all the inspired writings, the Holy Spirit has spoken through the servants of God, and what was spoken has been written down with the collection of the authoritative writings of the apostles and the approval of the church that these are the books God has given to us, with the collection of the New Testament books added to the already gathered books of the Old Testament, prophecy changes. It's no longer directly receiving words from God and then spouting them back. Prophecy is different now. It's interpreting what God has already spoken in the Scriptures. And then there's diaconal service, deacons who care for the needy and the hurting and the wounded and the weakened. There are those who teach and exhort. Both of those duties probably apply to pastors, though not necessarily only to pastors. Teaching is the explaining of doctrine, how the church speaks back what the Scriptures speak to us. Exhortation is preaching. This is how these doctrines say we should live. The one who contributes, the one who has wealth and is able to give charitably and generously, the one who leads, the verb here is actually the one who rules or governs, probably elders. And there are those who do acts of mercy, more compassion and kindness. Those who aid the deacons without office. Those who are, who are moved to help those who have needs all around them. So there are gifts in the church. Jesus didn't leave us without gifts. And Paul says, use them. The gifts that he's given to you, use them. How does Jesus want gifts used in the church? Jesus told a parable in Luke 19. A nobleman went into a far-off country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. And he said to them, engage in business until I return. But his citizens hated him and they sent a delegation after him to say, we do not want this man to reign over us. Don't give him a kingdom, in other words. When he returned, having received his kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. It's a straightforward parable. In Luke, Jesus tells this parable right before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And by telling it in this place, Jesus is saying that he's the nobleman in the parable. And he's off to receive his kingdom. And there will be a delegation that opposes it. Some will dispute it. 
We don't want this man to reign over us. We don't want his kingdom and his rule at all. Priests, Pharisees, people, they'll join together. And some will receive his kingdom. And some will say they're for his kingdom with their lips, but not with their lives. And the far off country where Jesus goes to receive his kingdom is the cross and the tomb and the ascension. And his coming back is split out across Two events, his resurrection and his return at the end of all things. His second coming, his second advent. But in the meantime, the master in the parable and the Messiah himself gives out pieces of his own wealth to be used and invested. He doesn't go away and leave us with nothing. He reaches into his own pockets and he says, here, use this while I'm away. But where do we spend it? There's a beautiful little film out just now called The Secret of Kells, K-E-L-L-S. It was up for Best Animated Picture at this year's Academy Awards in this gorgeously drawn cartoon. There's this interesting dramatic tension that builds. In the story, the Vikings are streaming down from the north and they're ravaging everything in their path. They're devouring the British Isles sacking and burning and killing and looting. And in the village of Kells, there's a monastery. And one monk, the head monk, the abbot, he decides not to use his gifts anymore. The the monks in this particular monastery were scribes. They spent their time making copies, manuscripts of the scriptures. But this monk gives up on all of that And he takes all of his skill and all of his energies and all of his time and he redirects them to a massive engineering project. He's building a wall of defense around the city because he's convinced that a wall will keep the darkness out. But there's another monk who can't forget the gifts he's been given. And he spends all of his time not building the wall but copying the scriptures, making a manuscript, one book with all four Gospels together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with lavish, gorgeous, marginal illustrations pouring out all over the pages. And he believes if they can finish the book, if they can protect the book from the Vikings, they can carry the good news out into the world, and the light will drive the darkness away. One monk refuses to use the gifts he's been given. And another monk can't turn his back on the gifts that were given and the use for which they were given. And that comes out at the end of the parable. The servants come before the master and they open up their ledgers. It's time to account For what's gone on while the master's been away. And the first servant says, Master, welcome home. Your one mina is now ten. Well done, good servant. I give you ten cities to oversee for me. And the second servant steps up. Good to see you again, master. Your one mina has become five. And you shall oversee five cities for me. And somewhere near the end of the line... 
A servant steps up who says, Hello, Master. Here is your one mina back. And the Master catches it and holds it in his hand and says, Explain. And the servant says, I knew you were a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow, and I was afraid. So, I took your mina and wrapped it up in a sock and kept it in the top drawer of my dresser. And I'm proud to say, I have neither lost nor earned. And then, in this parable, in Luke 19, the story ends with a slaughter of the king's enemies. Those who didn't want the king's reign... And we're left to assume the servant who did nothing with what was given to him. Now the question is, why does the parable end so darkly? How can a parable of grace end so darkly? And the answer is, because the grace of Jesus is so good. Can you see it? Or did I lose you? The grace of Jesus is so good that it's not to be hidden away, it's not to be buried, it's not to be sat upon. The parable actually says nothing of the business plans and the investment strategies of the servants who made money for the king. Nobody cares what they did, and it doesn't matter. In fact, the king doesn't say to them, go make money. All he says is, do business. That's all. Take what I give you and do something with it. Doesn't matter what you do. Why? Because the king's gifts always bring in a return. It's not in the one who uses the gifts, it's in the gifts themselves. Jesus is bound and determined to be gracious and to build his kingdom. And for the building of his kingdom, he only gives grace-bearing gifts. And that's why he gives gifts at all. He is seeking a kingdom just like the master in the parable. So the gifts he gives us to use in the building of his kingdom are really just pieces and glimpses and tastes and touches of his cross and his resurrection. And they can't not bring in a return. And the judged servant in the parable, he even gets it right. He says, you take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. In other words, I realized that all this is for your kingdom and your glory and not mine. And I didn't like that, so I kept your investment for myself. I don't like grace. I want what's coming to me. I want what's mine. I want my share. I want my cut and what I should have. And this gracious parable ends with judgment. Because if you don't want the grace of Jesus, there's literally nothing left for you. But the gospel is... Jesus fills his church with his gifts to build his kingdom. And he pours extraordinary gifts into his church because he's the Savior who brought a trove of gifts into the world. He brought righteousness into our unrighteous flesh. He brought 
atonement and forgiveness into our condemnation and our judgment. He brought uncontainable life into our custom-built tombs. The undeniable gospel here is an unfailing Savior gives unfailing gifts to be used unfailingly in spite of ourselves. And that's why Paul says use them in faith, not according to your ability, not according to your capacity, but you use them in the measurement and in the proportion of faith. You use these gifts beyond your convenience and beyond your comfort sometimes and beyond everything that you think is possible in you and through you. The way we use the gifts of Jesus poured into His church is what we believe about Jesus. Is He the generous King who gives all of Himself for His people? If that's what we believe, it'll come out in the way we use our gifts on each other and with each other. And for those outside of the church we're ministering to as well. Or do we believe that Jesus is actually the chintzy miser of a master, the way the servant thought of him in the parable? One who's not to be trusted, so he has to be extorted and embezzled from. He has to be outmaneuvered and tricked. And meanwhile, Jesus uses his gifts in the church according to what he has always been, the self-giving Redeemer King. So Paul says to us in the opening verse, don't think too highly of yourself. In other words, if you are thinking of yourself, then you're thinking of the wrong thing. But if you're thinking of how gracious Jesus is, how gracious He insists on being to both His lost and His already found elect, then use your gifts freely. They'll flow from His grace. That's using them by faith. Because you won't be using them for you. And the best part is, the best part is, when you use your gifts like this, people around you barely notice you at all. They won't celebrate you. They'll celebrate Jesus, the one who should be celebrated. It's the deepest joy I know to use the gifts Jesus gives to us to preach or teach, to interpret the word of life, to heal the wounded and give aid to those who need help, to lead and guide and direct, to contribute, to share from the abundance that God has given, to sit with someone, befriend Someone Pray with someone regularly in the hope of giving comfort and confidence against distress and despair. To be used by Jesus as He loves His own. To be used by Jesus as He ministers to those whom He is calling or those whom He has already redeemed. And after the exercise of all these gifts, after we've done everything we know to do and we feel like we haven't even done it very well, Sometimes we've just done what's been needed to be done. After all the effort and energy and the attention to hear people say, 
nothing of us, not even to mention our names, but instead to say, Jesus is so good. Jesus is so gracious. Jesus is so generous. He is so beautiful in the way He has been loving us. I've never had more joy in the Savior than I've had recently. I've never had more confidence in the way Jesus loves and cares for His church than I've had recently. That's what it feels like to live inside the gifted church that knows how to minister with the gifts of Jesus. Skeptics, let me tell you the mystery of the church. If you're a skeptic and you're not a follower of Jesus, but you're listening, you're weighing these things, here's what you should know. The mystery of the church is this. We don't know what we're doing. We don't have a clue. But Jesus knows exactly what he's doing with us. And it's always good. And he never fails to do what he intends to do with us. And that's why you should be part of the church. That's why you should move close to it. And you should attach yourself to it. Because Jesus is good to his church. Even though we're a mess. He loves us and he won't stop loving us. And you should be a part of it. Back in 1995, the South African rugby team was admitted to the World Cup after years of exclusion because of the domestic policy of apartheid, whites and blacks living separately. In fact, black South Africans treated as if they were less than human. But by 1995, things had begun to change in South Africa. In fact, in 1993, Nelson Mandela was released from prison after 27 years 20 of them spent on Robben Island, a South African version of Alcatraz. But in 93, he was released. And Mandela promised that if white South Africa would agree to democratic elections, he would figure out a way to bring the World Cup of Rugby home to South Africa. Well, no one could refuse the offer. The elections were held. Mandela was elected. He became the president of South Africa and true to his word, he brought the World Cup home in 1995. Still, rugby was a white man's game. Non-whites didn't play rugby very often. There was only one non-white on the national team in 1995. And no non-whites watched the sport The team name and the graphic, a springbok, a a leaping African antelope, the team color, this deep green, they were symbols of white dominance and oppression and racism. And Mandela knew all of that, so he went to the team and he made a personal appeal. He asked the players not to play for themselves, but to play for a new South Africa. And they took this as their calling. In the World Cup, the Springboks were not favorites, not by a long shot, but they kept winning against 
all odds. They kept winning, and they went all the way to the semifinals. And the day before the semifinal match, Mandela walked into this stadium packed with hundreds of thousands of black South Africans. And he was himself, as he came into the stadium, smiling and waving and shaking hands and touching people. And he climbed into the podium, and he shocked everyone by taking out a dark green springbok cap and he put it on his head and the crowd was displeased. How could Mandela wear a symbol of white dominance and oppression after all the whites had done to him for decades, decades? Had he forgotten how he had been mistreated by these people? Mandela took the hat off his head and he held it up to the crowd and he said into the microphone, I'm asking every one of you to care about what happens in the game tomorrow. I'm asking every one of you to watch and to cheer and to care. This is our team. These are our boys. And to an ocean of booze, he put the cap back on his head and he finished the rally. The Springboks won the semifinal match against France the next day. They would play for the World Cup against the very best team in all the world, the New Zealand All Blacks, a punishing team whose known game plan has always been to brutalize and injure the opposing team as badly as possible within the first 15 minutes of play. And the Springboks stayed with New Zealand through the whole match. When the match ended, the score was tied. There would be two overtime periods to decide the match, 20 more minutes of play from battered, exhausted players. For two 10-minute periods, the teams fought back and forth, up and down the field. But for the first time, all of South Africa was cheering. Black and white South Africa together was hoping for a victory for their country. It was the first time in South Africa's history that blacks and whites had a common purpose, a shared heart, a single desire. At the end of overtime, the Springboks had scored and the All Blacks had not. And South Africa won the cup. All these years later, Bailey Swart, a forward on the Springbok team, explains it all this way. We were using our God-given talents. Ah, this is where we go back into the passage now. Or better yet, this is where the passage comes leaping off the page into the streets of Cape Town or Johannesburg or Soweto or maybe even Dallas. We were using our God-given talents to teach black people and white people to love each other. That's fantastic. They weren't playing for a trophy or to be rugby legends or for pride or for love of the sport. They were playing for transformation. They were playing for a new kingdom. What does the king want with the gifts he has given to you? Not a trophy, not awards, not pride, not to be impressed with you. 
Not even celebration of the gifts. He already has all the gifts in perfection in himself. He wants what he's always wanted and what we have always needed. He wants his kingdom of grace. And that's why Paul says, use the gifts he gives in faith by the measure and the proportion of faith. Use them beyond yourself. Use them when you think there's nothing left of you. And the secret of the gospel is this. It is not hard to give more than everything to the king who gives more than everything. Amen. Lord Jesus, give us faith to speak and believe this confession. The church is not built on our gifts. The church is built on the gifts of Christ shared with us as tokens of your enduring love. And let everything else fail. Everything in our world, everything in our hearts, everything in our lives, let all else fail but love. Let us be left with only love that took shape in an infant Redeemer King, wearing our flesh and loving us in our flesh in the shape of a crucified Savior who exhausted divine love for us in the shape of a holy warrior laughing at a tomb that could not hold him. Let us see you as the all-gracious one and show it by giving to us unfailing gifts and with the gifts that you give us. Make us free and unselfish and mature and build your kingdom of love. And for all of this, we will give you thanks. We ask it in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.